0: Good morning. We're going to be reading from the book of the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Um, If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, it is page 887 today. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. Remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. And the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. Be well, as, uh, as Pastor Ian said, uh, we are all members of, of Team Jesus. Uh, as I heard him speak uh, in, in the Sunday school this morning, the, the Church of Jesus, the body of Christ, is a body of bodies. So, uh, in the name of the, the body of Christ up the street on 106, uh, Faith Community Bible Church in Loudoun, greetings uh, to fellow members of Team Jesus. Um, Ian has been a good friend of mine since he arrived uh, here, and uh, it has been wonderful to get to know him and, uh, and serve with him in, the, in this body. And I am privileged. Uh, I know he, he rightfully protects uh, this pulpit. Uh, because he, as a under-shepherd, seeks to protect his flock. And so I'm not at all unmindful of, uh, of, of the great trust that is put in being able to, to divide the word of Scripture uh, to you today. Um, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Imagine that you were a, um, a Jew 2,000 years ago, in the time of Jesus, and it's the Passover of the Jews is at hand, and you are coming up with your family to Jerusalem the first time to spend Passover in that city. You really don't know what to expect. You've heard about the temple, you've read the Torah, you, you've, you've heard his holy instructions about the tabernacle, the, the tent and how meticulous he was in prescribing the way that that would be built and and how he would be worshipped. You've read how Solomon built the temple as a kind of permanent tabernacle. Your mind is full of imagery of of the carved olive wood and cedar and silver and gold. You know that this first temple was destroyed about 500 years ago by the Babylonians. And then soon after, at the, at the bidding of a Babylonian king was was built again. And then recently has been expanded to, to great glory by King Herod. How blessed it will be to worship on Passover in Jerusalem in this temple. And though you have never seen the temple before, it is vivid in your mind what it will be like, what it will look like, what it will feel like, worship God on Passover in the temple. Along the way to Jerusalem, you meet a group of people who are following a rabbi, and many of those people who are following them are not the kind of people you would expect to be following a rabbi. In fact, several of them say that they were just fishermen when he called them. They're talking about strange things. You heard that John the Baptist, who is quite famous in this area, has said he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One of these followers is named Nathaniel, and he tells you that not only has Jesus told him about himself, but that before he even met him, that Jesus was able to tell him what he was doing. Many are saying that, that this Jesus has just come from a wedding in Cana, and there he turned water into wine. Some are calling him the Messiah, and you, they are anticipating what will happen when the Messiah enters his temple. And now you're starting to think even grander thoughts. If this man is truly who they say he is, what is going to happen? Is this when the oppressors will be driven out? Is this when the kingdom of God will be reestablished here on earth? If he turns water into wine at someone's, at someone's wedding, What kind of miracles and signs will he perform in Jerusalem in the temple on Passover? So now you're here in Jerusalem, and it is packed with people. Has anyone been to a Middle Eastern city before? Or, or, Or just packed with people and heat and smells and sounds. It's overwhelming. As you approach the temple on the east side of the city, you realize that your mind's eye of how big this is was just too small. For a person who's grown up in a village, it is incomprehensibly huge. The temple complex is a huge walled structure. And in, in today's measurement, think about 30 football fields or more in size. It's built on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's Jesus' feet hit the first steps of this temple to the outer courtyard your anticipation builds. What is gonna happen? What is inside those walls? Will people be shouting Hosanna and waving palm fronds? Will they be welcoming their deliverer? Will Jesus bless these faithful people inside who have gathered to worship God? Will he immediately start to work miracles? Your hands are maybe sweating and and shaking as you anticipate this, as you follow Jesus through the gates with his disciples. You get a brief relief from the hot sun as you go into the shade of the portico. It's held up by these giant pillars, and, and you're just more and more impressed. And then you walk into this courtyard, and the sun is blinding and hot again. But there are no shouts of Hosanna. There's no one waving palm fronds. In fact, you don't see what you would call worship of God. In fact, very little of what you see matches any of what you anticipated. There are sights and sounds and smells of a marketplace. Crowds, merchants, livestock, business, all around you are merchants are calling out to people to come and exchange their Tyrian silver coins for the approved temple half shekel. Another merchant grabs a disciple's garment and says, come here, my friend, come here. I have the perfect lamb for you. It is a year old without blemish, exactly as commanded by Torah. For you, he says, I have a special price. And others are shouting, out, trying to get the business from him, competing with them. And you ask, what is this? What is happening? And you look back at Jesus. He's looking around. He's taking in these, these same scenes. You see him stoop down and, and pick up some cords or some ropes off the ground. And he's, he starts sorting them in his hands and his face has changed. Pause on that for a moment. Study the face that might be in your mind right now. What kind of emotions are you seeing? Is there anger, or sorrow, indignance, outrage, incredulity? It play again. Jesus just takes a deep breath. He walks up to one of the tables. He grabs a lockbox and he pours out the coins on the table. And then he flips that table over, and coins go scattering. He takes that whip in his hand and he starts driving out a brace of oxen and the merchants who are with it. He goes by a gate and he, and he whips that open and sheep go out and he drives them out as well. People are screaming. They're moving towards the exits. He comes up to the table where they're selling the pigeons and the cages and he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And they grab their bird cages and run. And you can't quite make out what you're seeing. The merchants are fleeing. Some are gathering their coins and animals if they're able. But soon the cart- courtyard is much more empty. And the shouting turns to murmuring. And Jesus is standing in the middle of the courtyard, maybe breathing hard, sweating from the exertion. Rainy people are sort of maintaining a safe distance from him. And you're gonna think, What just happened? As you're trying to sort this out, a drama, you realize the drama isn't over because now people start coming in again. Some of them are shaking their fists and they say, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus, still exhausted from the effort, says, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. You gasp with the others. Who is this madman? Destroy this temple? The very center of worship of God? And what he's saying doesn't even make sense. The people are saying the same thing. One says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it up in three days? You hear jeers and indignant shouts and you think again, what just happened? Well, the short answer is Jesus got angry. And as we look deeper into the text today, we may consider why he got angry at what he got angry and how he expressed his anger. In fact, it is very tempting to take this text and make it all about Jesus's anger because we want to feel good about our anger, too, sometimes. But perhaps more important than asking what just happened is asking, what does all this mean? As we consider these questions, we're going to see that Jesus' anger, this is sort of a sermon in a nutshell, Jesus' anger is righteous in its reasons. It's also righteous in its response. And it is righteous in its results. Jesus' righteous anger is righteous in its reasons. In the temple, he found that they were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers were sitting there. This is not the only time the scripture records Jesus getting angry. A common theme that plays through each instance is that Jesus is angered when something gets between him and the people he came to redeem. Jesus gets angry when people are blocked, diverted, hindered, hampered from accessing his person and his blessing. In John 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is angered at death and hopelessness that get between him and the people that he had come to bring to uh, peace and comfort and hope and joy and life. In Luke 13, it's the religious leaders and, and, and their rules that try to get between a suffering woman and the one who came to heal her. In Mark 10, it is his own disciples that get between him and children. In Matthew 23, he is furious again at the religious hypocrites who put their burdens, their false teachings, and their rules that they themselves do not follow between the people and the one who comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. And here today, in today's passages, Jesus is angered at the marketplace, the commerce, profit, greed, and distraction that are getting between him and the people Between the God of Israel and the people who have come to worship that God. So you might ask, what would Jesus be angry about today? Two questions that I've been asking over the past few months is what gets between me and Jesus? And then what gets between us, a church, and Jesus? Maybe it's priorities and distractions. Maybe you're too tired this morning to focus because of what went on last night. Maybe you're looking forward to what goes on later in this this afternoon. Thinking about what you have to do, what you want to do, what's ahead, what the chores are, what the activities are. And you're unable to focus on the God to whom you've said you've come to worship. Is it pride? We've got both individual pride and corporate Pride. A lack of humility sometimes that leads to legalism and judgment rather than loving care. We confessed it this morning in the liturgy. Attitudes which, uh, right, that subsume the mission of Christ for our own priorities and desires, lifting up ourselves instead of Christ. Is it another kind of pride, one of knowing about Jesus without truly coming to know Jesus? The methods and motions of Sunday services, our Monday through Saturday routines in which we've become comfortable, get between us and our Savior who calls us to a life which is often uncomfortable. Again, we confess this morning about treating the gospel as merely a good idea. Maybe it's selfishness or greed, not just the kind that preachers talk about during their annual tithing sermon. Right? Or whether we're trying to drum up support for a missionary or a building project, but maybe the kind of selfishness that embraces the comfort of salvation without reaching out to others with that same salvation. When's the last time that we say that we shared the life-giving gospel with another person? When was the last time that we proclaimed the gospel, of both word and deed? to another person, to a person who is on his or her way to an eternity in hell? Are we failing to share the grace we have been given? Do you find yourself singing songs of praise without praising, of of saying prayers without praying, reading scripture without ingesting, listening without hearing? Maybe you say amen to sermons with your mouths while the words never get into your heart. Have you come to like the idea of belonging to the body of Christ, to Christ's church here, of acknowledging that it is important without believing that it is essential? Have you found that you know but don't become because you go through the motions of worship without worshiping? If so, you're in good or or bad company. You join with those, in those sins with me. You join in those sins with my brothers and sisters up at Faith Community Bible Church. You join with people who have come to claim the name of God all the way back to the Old Testament when God spoke of his anger to Isaiah, saying, because these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are still far from me, And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And in the events of our scripture reading today, Jesus saw those same sinful attitudes and practices in the temple getting between him and the people that had come to worship him and it angered him. Again, think about what gets between you, between us, people in need of a saving relationship with Jesus. What gets between us and that same Jesus who is reaching out with that very salvation that we need. I think we can agree that these are reasons that Jesus should be angry. And that when he is angry, it is the righteous God incarnate who is angry righteously. And so Jesus' is righteous. anger is righteous in its reasons, but it is also righteous in its response. Because indeed, if our sins anger Jesus, and they do, it is only because of God's mercy that we are not without hope. Praise God that Jesus' anger is righteous not only in its reasons, but in its response. Remember, though Jesus was fully man, he is Fully God. He is the one who has the power not only to heal, but also to destroy. Jesus' response to the blasphemous practices in the temple that were getting between him and the people could have been much more severe. He could have struck the merchants down dead, he could have rained fire from heaven, consumed everything in that courtyard. Yet to those of us who picture a soft Jesus, always gentle, always passive, we must acknowledge that his response is anything but soft, gentle, or passive. See, there are times when it is appropriate to respond to evil with an injustice, with a soft word, with, with a gentle reproach, or even to overlook an offense. But there are other times that demand harsh rebuke, even violent action. And this is one of these times. In verse 15, it says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeon, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He is not responding in anger because of a personal affront. He is not responding in anger because the floor is dirty. He is angry that people are being obstructed from the very God that they have come to worship. The God of creation, the God of their fathers, the God who delivered them from slavery, and the God who has sent Jesus into the world to save it from its sins. And so Jesus' righteous response, though measured and even restrained is harsh, harsh. It's focused, it's even violent. He forms this whip out of ropes or cords. He pours out coins, he flips the tables, he drives people out of the the courtyard. And again, we see that his righteous response to anger is, is found elsewhere in the gospels. You see, Jesus emptied the world's understanding of death at Lazarus's tomb by bringing him back to life. He overturned the world's false practices of Sabbath by healing people on it. He drove even his own disciples out of the way to make room for children to come to him. He threw away burdens and destroyed false teachings, swept them away to make a clear path for the people to come to their redemption. And later in the Gospel of John, we are going to see Jesus pouring out again, overturning again and driving out again. Because in Jerusalem, later, he will pour out not coins, but his own blood as he offers up himself as a perfect sacrifice on the cross. And in doing so, he overturned the tables of condemnation. The world's hopeless and relentless march toward hell. As God laid our sinful iniquity on Christ's innocent body, hung on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, we have been healed. And then he overturned the stone that was covering his tomb and he drove out death and Satan himself. Do you think Jesus might pour out our riches? And he might overturn the tables? May drive out obstacles in our lives that are getting between us and him. I think so. See, the prosperity gospel idolizes comfort and tells us that if we will just put our faith in Jesus, that he will give us wealth, possessions, health, and well-being. But the gospel of Jesus doesn't say that. The gospel of Jesus says that he will take all of it and he will pour it out on the earth to keep it from coming between you and him. The gospel of pride tells us that God helps those who help themselves. It honors a self-made man. It, it glorifies the strong and even tells us to put ourselves or to put our nation first. The gospel of Jesus Christ overturns that. It overturns that pride like a money changer's table, it commands us to serve one another, count anything that we would count righteous ourselves as loss, as dung, to rejoice in our weakness and to seek become, to become least, decreasing so that Christ might increase the gospel of fear tells us to fear the world and its prince. Fear what he can do. Fear what he can take away. Possessions, jobs, houses, savings, health, relationships, security, and even our lives. But the gospel of Jesus drives out that fear, saying, fear not those who can only kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is, can destroy both body and soul in hell and that Jesus drives out death alone and that he and he alone is the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me he says though he die yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall not die praise be to Jesus the son of God the author of our salvation the focus and power of the only true gospel May he empty us of our false comfort, overturn our pride, and drive out our fears just as he cleansed and renewed the temple. May he cleanse and renew the new temple, our very lives, which he says are the new temple of the Holy Spirit. And so again, what in your life is standing between you and Jesus? And what in this church is standing between you and Jesus. Don't be worried that God will pour out or turn over and drive out these things. Plead that he would do that. Praise God that Jesus' righteous anger is righteous not only in its reasons, not only in, in, in in the way in which he carries it out, but also it is righteous in its results. And because of that, we can be eager for the disruption that the gospel of Christ brings into our lives. Because Jesus' righteous reasons, righteous response, it ends up with righteous results. Verse 17, it says, his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This phrase is repeated twice, 17 and 22. Right? The disciples remembered. The, first, the disciples first remembered the moment when this was happening, and then later they will remember the past. When Jesus cleansed the temple, the disciples remembered the Scripture. They remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's a phrase that came from Psalm 69. And of course, for the disciples to have remembered this psalm, they had to have known it in the first place. They knew Scripture well enough that when they saw Jesus wrecking the temple, it reminded them of that psalm. And they said, oh, this is what the Scripture was talking about. Then we read that the Jews challenged Jesus and demanded a sign from Him uh, to show His authority. And Jesus respond as, responded, as he often does, with a parable of sorts. And the people, and most likely his disciples in the moment, misunderstood what it meant. But later, just as he would explain other parables, he would explain to those who continued to follow him. And the context of that became clear. And so later, the disciples remembered. Seeing isn't always believing often remembering is believing and so while, while Jesus' righteous anger is certainly an answer to the question what just happened the disciples remembering and believing is the answer to what does this mean it's the reason behind the entire gospel of god john this account is not about Jesus' anger This account is about remembering and believing, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Beloved, how can we help one another to know scripture so intimately that when we see God at work, we remember and we believe? Are you regularly reading and studying? I heard this in the Sunday school class today too. Are you reading and studying the word with another believer or a group of believers? Friends, how can we help one another to know Jesus so intimately that when we see God at work, we remember and believe? If you are a mature Christian, and I know we have mature Christians in here, Are you discipling someone else? Saying to that person, as Paul said to Timothy, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And do you have somebody, whether you're a new Christian or, or a Christian, all your life, do you have someone who is discipling you? We need this kind of help because this is the truth. There is something between you and Jesus. And there is something between us and Jesus. If you have not yet found your hope in Jesus, what is standing between you and Jesus is your unforgiven sin, your rebellion against Him, and your reliance on yourself. And if you are a Christ follower, you know as well as I do that the things of this world, the desires of the eye, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, Are still getting in the way, getting between you and Jesus. If we're honest, we're often the ones that want those things to stay right where they are. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he poured out overturned and drove out people's livelihoods, their accepted practices, and even their sense of normalcy. He had to do that because these things were getting in the way, getting between him and the people he loves it was likely a scary thing to witness. Not scary only because of Jesus' anger, but because of what he poured out, what he overturned, what he drove out. Those were the things that people relied upon, that they desired, that they sought, that they even treasured. They were things that they relied upon, desired, sought, and treasured even more than God himself. So if Jesus were to cleanse the temple today, both the temples of our individual lives and that of our church, we would likewise lose some of the things upon which we rely, things we desire, things we find important, normal, that we treasure, that comfort us, that we think are essential because they are coming between us and Jesus. And Jesus is righteously angry at that And praise God that he is also eternally merciful. His desire to remove them from our lives so that he can embrace us. There are two ways that we can consider what it would look like for Jesus to cleanse the temple of our lives and of the church. One is with fear, fearing what we would lose. And the other is with faith, knowing what we will gain. The difference between the two is whether we rely on the false promises of this world and the the false promises of its prince. Or remember the true and eternal promises of God. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, would you bear with me and take these two steps of faith this week that are written on the sermon notes. First, would you pray that God would reveal to you what is standing between you and Jesus? What skepticism is keeping you from the one who is perfect in knowledge? What are you using as a crutch to keep from falling into the lap of your Savior? What are you desiring more than the one who is the only one worth desiring? What are you clinging to for safety and to avoid dangerous acts of faith and the only one who can give you true security? What normalcy in this world is keeping you from an extraordinary relationship with Jesus Christ? And second, would you then pray that Jesus would take whatever that is and pour it out, turn it over, drive it out of your lives and the church? Would you pray that he would give you the courage to drop your burdens, to take on his yoke, to leave the world's comforts, to find rest in Jesus, to renounce the temptations of this world, to follow the voice into kingdom work, to forget the false promises of Satan and remember the true, the eternal promises that are in his God's scripture. Let's pray. lord the people who have followed you or have claimed to follow you from the beginning have been a stiff-necked people and we are no different we are unfaithful we seek our own comforts we seek our own meaning we seek to increase and in doing so we decrease your stature in our lives Lord, reveal to us our sin. Help us, give us the grace to repent from it. Lord, pour it out, drive it out, overturn it in our lives that we may have no barriers between us and you. Lord, we love you, we we glorify you, and we give you praise and thanks. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.